morning as we dive into 1 Peter chapter 2, kind of backtracking just a little bit to talk about um, why we chose 1 Peter in the first place. Why was it that as we replant in this community, get reestablished, become a, a greater kingdom outpost in this geography, why would we choose 1 Peter as our first series? And um, there were many reasons why uh, Taylor and I and Nathaniel um, wrestled with, you know, this whole counsel of God and, and came to 1 Peter. But um, one specifically was, was this. We felt like, well, we know that this letter was written to a people who were suffering, a people who were undergoing persecution, a people who were undergoing trials, um, a, a people who um, really were just really being persecuted. And we felt that, and especially me as I was thinking about this, but thought about our, our culture and where we are today. And we don't have the same type of persecution that, these, uh, that, the, that the early church experienced, right? We're gathered here this morning in a very public place with the doors unlocked, and we're able to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But at the same time, I thought that there was a, a growing change, a growing trend in our culture that um, really, I think, is we're becoming more and more like the early church, in a culture that is hostile to Christ. And, and then I stumbled upon this quote as I was preparing this sermon from um, J.H. Eliot, and he's talking about the early church, the people that are receiving this letter from Peter. And I want to read it to you because when I read it, I, I, I don't think my jaw actually dropped, um, but internally my jaw dropped because I felt like it actually descri- described exactly what we, wh- what our culture is like today. So here's, here's the quote. The early church experienced a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standard of conduct. Now, hopefully you heard that, and hopefully it could soak in just a little bit, but I think you're able to see some connections between what the early church was experiencing and what we um, are starting to experience here in the United States. Uh, We can experience verbal abuse because we follow Christ, because we hold fast to his truth. And the verbal abuse can be designed to demean, to discredit, and to shame the believers. There's also public shaming, and it's used to try to control with the aim of pressuring the minority Christian community to conform not to the values of Scripture, not to the values of Christ, but rather to theirs. And so I think you can start to see the connection. We are in a culture that is quickly and rapidly, especially over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, moving away from our historical, um, being generally accepting of Christianity and its morals and values, quickly moving to a place where Christianity is viewed as the enemy. And so in light of all of this, we wanted to press into 1 Peter because Peter is writing a letter to these people who are experiencing what we experience, but on a greater level, and he's trying to encourage them and equip them to follow.
the face of a culture that's hostile to that. And so this morning, that's, that's our goal. In this whole sermon series, that's our goal. But this morning especially, I want us to be reminded of the good news of God as Peter expresses here. I want us to be reminded of who we are and what really God has made us and what that means for our little church as we replant in this community. So I just want to go ahead and start with a, a word of prayer. Um, I'm a sinful man, and I need the grace of God, and that was exposed to me just as we were worshiping this morning, get stressed and overwhelmed. I just want to come before the Lord and ask him to speak and not be me. So let's, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this opportunity to be here. Lord, we pray that you would meet us, that you would remind us of the gospel, that you would bring the gospel to our hearts, cause us to be awakened to the reality that you are Savior and you are God. Help us, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Peter starts off, well, he doesn't start off, this is like chapter 2, but for me, he starts off in this uh, text by reminding them of, the, of who Jesus is. He starts off in the face of all this persecution by reminding them of who Jesus is, and he uses the phrase living stone which is a unique phrase in scripture. For my limited research, I didn't scour the scriptures for this, but I did not see living stone elsewhere. I could be wrong. But it seems to be something that Peter has coined. And so what does living stone mean? Well, he explains it as he keeps going on because he quotes three Old Testament passages that talk about a cornerstone. So why does Peter say that Jesus is the living stone in, when he's talking about him being the cornerstone. Well, most scholars, and I would agree, believe that he's just coining that phrase to remind us that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That we worship and, and, and hold fast to a cornerstone that is not a, someone that died, but rather someone who is alive. And so, one, he's just saying this is the risen Christ. The risen Christ is the cornerstone. But what is a cornerstone? What does that mean? And And... To explain that, I thought we'd take just a step back and talk about what a cornerstone actually is in a building, especially in, in that time period. We don't really build the same way. And I think Casey's not here, which is good, because if I get something wrong, he could point out, no, that's not how buildings are made. But from my understanding of um, cornerstone back in that time period, when you built a building, the first stone that you laid down was the cornerstone. And that cornerstone had to be cut to perfection. If there was any flaw in the cornerstone, the entire building could be flawed. <clears throat> it could crumble. And so a cornerstone was put the, the first thing laid down, and it was the most important piece of the entire building. And so what the scriptures are trying to tell us here is that Jesus is the first stone laid down. And without him, if you take out the cornerstone, you don't have a building. You don't have righteousness. So what does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? What is he the cornerstone of? He is the cornerstone of our salvation. He is the cornerstone of the righteousness of God. He is the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. Everything hinges on Jesus. If you take him out, there is no building. If you take him out, he is no building. And we see this because of his death and resurrection. Because Jesus condescended from heaven, came down from heaven, from his glory, and chose to become a baby. 
born into this world and lived the perfect life, had no sin whatsoever, and then chose willingly to go to the cross. He chose willingly to go to the cross and endure the shame of the cross. Endure the public beating, endure the spitting, endure the, the horrific nature of the crucifixion. And on top of all of that, when he was on the cross, he took our sin. Our sin was laid upon him and then the wrath of God was poured out on him. The wrath that you and I deserve was poured out upon Christ. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. And then a few days later, ascended on to the right hand of the Father. The reason why Christ is the cornerstone is because without him, you and I have no hope. It is through his death and his resurrection that we have hope for anything. Christ alone is our cornerstone. It is through him and him alone that the kingdom of God is built, the righteousness of God is established, the salvation of the Lord to be had by you and me. So how does this encourage the early church? Going through these trials and persecution, why would this encourage them? Well, think about what they're enduring. Public shame, scorn, eventually being hung up as as tiki torches for Nero being crucified upside down, being martyred, what they needed to be reminded of was that what they had placed their hope in was a living stone, a reality that is set by God and established and firm, unbreakable. The reason why Peter is reminding them that you have come to the living stone is because they are being tempted left and right to leave the cornerstone. They've lost their families. To come to know Christ meant for some that their families rejected them. They lost the opportunities to operate as a normal citizen in that culture. They lost their friends. They could have lost their jobs. Peter is reminding them, you have established your life upon the living stone, sure, steady, solid. But also, if you read, and and I want to take a minute just to read starting in verse 6, he's also going to help them understand what is is happening to those who are persecuting them. In verse 6 it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Part of the reason that this is here in this text is to encourage the early church. You have been established. This is to your honor. It's not your honor that you're receiving, but rather the honor that that you are included in Christ. The honor of Christ is now yours. But to those who reject Christ, he becomes a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And when this happens, when we suffer persecution because of Christ, 
you need to understand, Peter saying, that this is what was David destined to be. Now, for us, I, mean, I want to address that briefly. When it says here that they, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, what Scripture is doing and what it does throughout the rest of the counsel of God is it holds in two hands that anyone who does not believe in Christ is guilty, their sin is upon them, they are morally wrong, and the punishment of God is just. And at the same time, Scripture also says that there are people who are chosen, there are people who are not. And we don't see in Scripture how these are reconciled. That's just a reality. Now, if you want to explore that more, I encourage you to come to Romans on Monday nights because that's a deep dive into that, and we don't have time for that, and that's not the point of this text. I wanted to address it. This is being held by Scripture. This is just the reality. We don't understand it. It's a paradox. That's okay. But the reason why it's here is to encourage the early church. All this suffering that you're going through, all this pain, all the trials that you're undergoing, it's not outside of the sovereignty of God. It's not outside of it. Everything that you're experiencing is under the sovereign plan of God. And that's good news for us as we endure. And, and so that was how the early church was encouraged. Well, what about us? How are we to be encouraged? Well, church, as we are growing into a culture that will come and will persecute us, will shame us for holding on to Christ, for believing in his truth. We must also remember we have built our lives upon the living stone. It is sure, it is secure. Come what may, he stands firm. And so for us, it's also encouraging. But I also want to talk about, I want to issue a bit of a warning because here you can see clearly how people reject Jesus, right? The early church would see people just outright reject Jesus and then persecute those who follow Christ. In our culture, though, there's a rejection that's a bit hidden. Because what can happen is we can come to Jesus thinking we're coming to him as the living stone, but in reality we're coming to him as a stone of Plato. A stone in which we come to him and say, you know what, I really like you, Jesus. I think you're really good, but here's what I'm going to do. I think we need to take this part away. I don't really like that you've asked me to do this. I don't think that this is good that you've asked me to take this out. Or I feel like this is a good thing, so we're going to add you in here. And what you're doing to Jesus at that point is you're not coming to him as a living stone. You're coming to him as a stone of Play-Doh like I see my girls make all the time. You try to build your life upon it, it's going to crumble. You cannot come to Jesus and nitpick with him. You cannot come to Jesus and say, you know what, I like this part, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take away this part. You can't, ha you can't do that. To come to Jesus as the living stone, you come to him and you build your life upon him. His truth, his plan, his glory, not yours. You come in repentance and faith to say, I'm all in with you. I leave behind my kingdom. I leave behind my pursuit of love. I believe behind my pursuit of money. I, believe, I, I leave behind my pursuit of fame. Whatever it is, because that is really a structure of sand that you've built your life upon. And we come and we submit our lives in repentance and faith to the living stone and we're built upon him. So that's our encouragement this morning. First, we've built our lives upon the living stone who is precious and chosen. 
But Peter doesn't just stop there. He says so much more to the early church, and he's saying so much more to us this morning. Beginning in verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And then you go to verse 9, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to talk about what Peter calls the church. First, I want to talk about in verse 9 when he says, but you are a chosen race. The cool thing about this phrase is that it's found in Isaiah 43. Peter's pulling us back to Isaiah 43. And really, you need to read the whole chapter to fully understand this, and we don't have time to read the entire chapter. But I want to say this. The main theme of that chapter is this. Isaiah is writing to a people in exile. And the Lord is speaking to the people in exile, saying, you are my chosen race. I am not going to leave you. I'm going to rescue you and redeem you and bring you home. So when Peter's calling us a chosen race, there's, there's a double meeting. We'll get to the second one in a second. But the first thing I think is he's trying to remind us is God knows exactly where we are. We are waiting, yearning for all creation to be renewed. And him using this little phrase, a chosen race, is a reminder that God sees us even when we're suffering even when we're persecuted, even when everything seems to be crumbling, he sees us and he has promised, because your life is built not upon your righteousness, but upon the righteousness of Christ, the living stone, he promises to bring us home. To bring us home. But he doesn't just say this. He says, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Um, yeah, those two. And and that ties back into Exodus 19, which we read this morning. Exodus 19, where the people of God have come to the mountain, and the Lord basically declares to the Israelites, you are my holy nation. In fact, I'm going to read it. It's too good. But at least I have it marked. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4. You, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Basically, you have seen that I have saved you. You have seen that I have come and rescued you. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the, all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, this language that Peter is using is he's tying us back into these people, the people of God, people born from Abraham. But What's happening here is that he's tying us in through faith. We are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We have been grafted in to the reality, to the, to the people of God. We are now a people, a race, a holy nation. And why are we this? Or what's, what's our mission? Our mission is now we are a royal priesthood. See, yes, Israelites had priests through the tribe of Levi, but this was not to the Israel, or excuse me, to the Levites. Exodus 19 was instead to all the people of God. They were all 
called to be roy- uh, a kingdom of priests. And now we are a royal priesthood. What that means is we stand in the midst of the world declaring the excellencies of God. We are the mediators between God and man. Under Obviously, Christ is the true mediator. But we stand declaring the excellencies of God to the lost. And then lastly, in verse 5, I love verse 5. It's beautiful. We are being, we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. The phrase spiritual house ties us back to the temple language. We are the new temple. No longer does God reside in a physical building in Jerusalem, but rather he chooses to reside here on this earth in the midst of us, his church. Now the early church would have seen this and and one, it would have been shocking because many of them are Gentiles and they're reading this and they're, they're learning that this ties back to the people of God, the Israelites, and they're seeing, wow, I am now a part of this. But I also want us to think in light of what they're experiencing, again, they may have lost family. Their family may have outright rejected them because of their faith in Christ. And what God is saying to them, what Peter is reminding them of, and really God through Peter, is that they are now a people, a nation, a race. Basically, they have family with one another. There's two races in scriptures, many ethnicities, two races, the people of God and the people that aren't. And you may have been, no, you are a part of the race, the people of God. You may have been rejected by your family, but you are a part of the people of God. You may have become social outcast in your culture, but you are a part of the people of God. You may be a sojourner and an exile in this world, but I have chosen you and I'm going to bring you home. And you may have lost all your business, all your opportunities to have any type of growth or wealth or anything, but now you have a new mission to be the priest, to, do, to declare the excellencies of God. Again, deeply encouraging to these, to these early church members. They had lost everything, but instead they'd actually gained more. But for us, when, when we think about this reality, when we stop and when we listen to everything that I just shared here, what ends up happening for us in the West is we think about this through an individual, individualistic lens. I'm a part of the people of God. I've been made into a royal priest. Yes and amen. But this is a corporate reality. Every commentator I read stressed this is not just for the individual. This is a corporate reality. The emphasis on that is vital to our understanding of the church. And really, I, can do, I can't do better than what Edmund Clowney wrote about this. And so I want to read his quote. It says, the church is not just a religious association formed by saved individuals to give united expression to their faith. Okay, I want to read that again. The church is not just a religious association formed by saved individuals to give united expression to their faith. I think that's a great description of really sometimes how I've approached church and I think how we are prone to approaching church here in the West. This is just an association where we can come and and express our own individual salvation with people that get it. 
right? All right, cool. You understand what I've gone through. Yeah, you understand that I'm a sinner. You understand what we just shared about Christ. Okay, great. No. Rather, the church is more a people than Israel was under the old covenant. Church fellowship is not an optional advantage to be chosen or ignored like membership in a social club. It is the calling of every Christian. There is a spiritual ethnicity to the church of Christ. Christians are blood relatives joined by the blood of Jesus. See, the corporate reality that we have been brought into is that we're not our own anymore. We've been bought by Christ, and we have brothers and sisters that we can relate to far more than we can even sometimes relate to our own family. We have been made of people. So what does that look like practically? That looks like us pressing into one another, loving one another deeply, calling one another, texting if you're deaf. Get it? Because I'm deaf. Calling one another, checking up on one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another. It will look like us calling one another out in sin. Because sin destroys. We're being built on the living stone. We don't need sin anymore. We cast it aside. And when we, when we expose our sin, we're met with grace and truth. It looks like becoming a family and pressing into that reality. And as our culture becomes more and more hostile to us, we are going to need one another all the more. We're going to need to press into one another, one another. There may come time where we actually have to start sharing goods, like food. May not, but there may come a time for that. There will come a time where, where people are openly hostile to us because of our faith in Christ. And we need to press in to one another. What would it look like if Sojourn Galleria were a community like that? What would it look like to a culture that is so individualistic and so focused on what they think is right and they persecute anybody that doesn't agree with them? What would it look like if we were a community based on the living stone, the truth of God, but the way we expressed that was love and grace and radical acceptance, acceptance obviously through Christ. There's a narrow path in. What would it look like? I want to, uh, not remind you, you never heard it. I want to read a quote from Aristides. If you don't know him, I didn't either. Um, he was a Roman historian, and Caesar, one of the Caesars, I don't know, there's a lot of Caesars. One of the Caesars asked him, this is early in the church, before Rome adopted Christianity. He asked him to go and figure out why Christianity was growing. Why is it growing? Just listen. Aristides is not a Christian. I can't stress that enough. Just listen to this. They love one another. That's the first thing he starts with. They love one another. And he who has gives to, gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger... They take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is any among them that are poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they will fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. 
what would it look like if we pressed into this reality that we are a chosen race, a holy people based not upon anything we have done, but based purely upon the living stone? What would it look like? We'd be amazing priests, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done in us. He has caused us to love one another in such a way where people on the outside who reject Jesus say there's something divine in the midst of them. This is a new people. And if we press into one another well, if we do parish life well, if we do discipleship groups well, if we do anything else that we come up with well, and we press into one another in love and press on, putting our life on the living stone, not on anything else, casting aside any little stones of Play-Doh that we might want to add to our lives. No, we cast it aside. We put our life on the living stone. We can be a royal priest that truly can declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We cannot let go of the reality that we have been made can't just do a Sabbath. That's nice, but okay, let's, let's go preach the gospel. No, both and. If we do this well, our preaching becomes all the more powerful. And I want to end with one more point. It's related, and, and, but I think it's a good challenge for us. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak of you against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter, one commentator says, at this point, starting in verse 11, he's going to switch from reminding them of the hope of the gospel and, and, and reminding them to exhorting them and how they ought to live as sojourners and exiles. And that kind of begins the rest of the letter. But, but I want to remind you of this. Our war is not the culture war. Here, as sojourners and exiles, we are to abstain from passions of the flesh because that wages war against our soul. Not culture war. That. Our enemy is not those who are trapped in sin. Our enemy is Satan. And we wage war against him, not the culture war. And I'm reminded of the Getty song. He says, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we fight with faith and valor. As Christians, we take up a sword. We're going out. We're going to war. But we war against the, the captor. We rage, rage against him. But to those who are lost, we use the sword because it makes the wounded whole. We fight with faith and valor. So Peter will say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That means when culture freaks out and demeans you, you respond with grace and truth. You respond with love. Because the more we do that, the more we press into one another, the greater our priesthood is. We begin to show people that we are a community of love. And when we speak, they might still call us evildoers, but they will see our good deeds on the day that God comes. On the day that Jesus comes back, 
they will see our good deeds. And we will point to Jesus as the originator of those, originator of those good deeds in our lives. So church, we build our lives on the living stone. We press into the reality that because of him we have been made a people. We love one another. We open ourselves up. We allow ourselves to press into community even though it can be hard and challenging. We are willing to receive broken people who have a weird, difficult background that's different from us. It doesn't matter. We welcome them in because Christ has welcomed us in. And we remember that the war is not against church, against Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into your word this morning. Lord, I can't stress enough how um, good you are to come and to save us. Jesus, if you would come and leave your throne as God, Jesus, you would come down to this earth and be born, live a perfect life, and die on the cross, taking our sin, bearing the wrath of God, and then rising three days later so that anyone could come to him and find their salvation. Lord, thank you for that. May that reality dive deep into our hearts this morning. May we love one another deeply. May we be committed to one another. We pray these things. Oh, and Lord, make us a priesthood. Make us into people that go out and declare your excellencies out of love, out of excitement for what you've done for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So now we're going to move to the table.